Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We are continuing this morning uh, our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, I hope that you guys are enjoying this as much as I am because we're going to be here a little while. Uh, uh, um, a couple Thanksgivings ago, we were driving to Georgia with the kids in the car, which is an extremely long ride with children in the car. Uh, but, you know, you can kind of turn around and look around Ohio and say, are you guys having a good time? Uh, I hope so, because we're going to be in this car for a long time. That's kind of like the series that we're in right now. But uh, we're in John chapter 3 today. Uh, and we're asking you uh, to read with us uh, next week or this coming week. We're going to go through two chapters to kind of catch up. So it's going to be John chapter 4 and 5 this coming week, if you can read that. Uh, but we looked in the first week of this series at how the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are written uh, as a, in poetic format, and they're considered a prologue to the rest of the gospel. What John does in those first 18 verses is he kind of previews what's about to begin unfolding in verse 19. So in John chapter 1, where John says, The law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That was John chapter 1. That was previewing. And then we get to John chapter 2. And what we talked about last week was how that began to unfold in the miracle, the sign of the water into wine. So we looked at that in detail last week. And I wanted to mention that because as we, as we go into John chapter 3, we're going to kind of see that unfolding process uh, again from the prologue back in John 1. So I just want to read a passage out of John 1, and then we'll dive into John, John 3. But John chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. Uh, he says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So John again here is previewing what's about to unfold in the remainder of the gospel. And John says that many, if not most, are going to reject him. But to those who receive him, uh, he gives them the right to become children of God, children born of God. And this, it's this idea that begins to unfold as we move into John chapter 3. And we're going to read the first uh, six verses to start off this morning. It says, now there, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So we're starting to see that unfolding process from back in John 1. In, in verse 4, uh, Nicodemus says, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into, the, into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So we see that idea from John 1 beginning to unfold. But really, if you think about this, this is kind of an odd conversation. Because Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and he says, We've seen all the miracles that you're performing, and we know that you're from God. And Jesus doesn't even acknowledge it. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, it's the grace of God or anything like that. Jesus just bypasses the whole, the whole subject matter and says, unless one is born again, they will never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? 
Where did that even come from? That's not what we were talking about. But before we get into this idea of new birth, of being born again, I want to give attention to a unique detail here. Because throughout the Gospels, uh, it, it talks about the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders. It talks about them in the Gospels about a hundred times. And this is the only instance I can find where it ever gives someone's name. Uh, and it's not a matter of how important that Pharisee was. Because if we look at Luke chapter 14, the Bible says that Jesus ate at the house of a prominent Pharisee. It was an important one, but not important enough to give us their name. This is the only name we're given of a Pharisee. It's Nicodemus. And I believe it's uh, supposed to be because we're supposed to follow his journey. Because this is the first mention we have of Nicodemus in John 3. And he's approaching Jesus at night. He, he is seeking the truth, but he doesn't want his peers to know about it. He doesn't want to be seen doing it. And it's worth mentioning, whenever the Bible talks about Pharisees and Sadducees, the Bible usually actually tells us uh, their intentions. So it tells us the Pharisees came to test him or the Pharisees came to challenge him or to trip him up or to challenge him. And when they did those things, they did them publicly, not at night. They did them publicly because they wanted Jesus to be tripped up for everyone to see. But what Nicodemus, on the other hand, seems to have a genuine interest in discovering the truth. He just doesn't want his peers to know that he's interested. But if we follow Nicodemus's story, we find this journey of, uh, of growth. Because the next mention of Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees see that people are beginning to place their faith in Jesus Christ. They're beginning to believe on him. So the Pharisees send the temple guards and they say, go arrest Jesus. And, and the temple guards come back. It's kind of funny. And they don't arrest him. They come back empty handed and they're like, where is Jesus? And they just reply, nobody's ever spoken to us like that man just spoke to us. We've never encountered anything like that. And the Pharisees, they become furious and, and they're, they're thinking of all these plans. But one Pharisee actually stands up in defense of Jesus. Who but Nicodemus? So we've gone through this journey where he doesn't want to be seen by his peers approaching Jesus. And now he's standing up for Jesus in front of his peers. And then we get to the final mention of Nicodemus in John chapter 19. Jesus has just been crucified. A man named Joseph of Arimathea takes him down from the cross to give him a proper burial. And the Bible says he was accompanied by one man to give him the proper burial. And that was Nicodemus. Nicodemus actually helped uh, wrap Jesus' body uh, in spices and prepare him for a proper burial. So Nicodemus's story is uh, out of a hundred or so mentions of Pharisees, he's the, the one man who was redeemed that we know of. And, and, and it's, it's a reminder that no one is out of the reach of Jesus Christ. No one is ir irredeemable. Anyone who wholeheartedly seeks the truth will find it. The problem is we live in a generation that doesn't want to seek the truth. They want to prove their truth to be true. That's not what it's about. We want to seek the truth of the word of God. And that's what Nicodemus uh, did. And he found it. But back to that first conversation, Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. And Jesus replies, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And then uh, I want to just look at verse five again of chapter three. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Now, it's actually due to, to a misinterpretation of this passage of Scripture that the church popularized a practice of infant baptism. 
Uh, this, this dates back to the, the early centuries after Christ. But the belief based on this verse was, well, water baptism must be a prerequisite to salvation. You must not be able to be saved unless you're born of water, so unless you're baptized. So what they did, because the infant mortality rate was so high, is they said, as soon as that baby is born, let's baptize them. Because if, if they die before we baptize them, they can't go to heaven. And that's where the whole idea of infant baptism took off. With that said, if you were baptized as an infant, no harm was done. You got a little wet. But uh, what I would always encourage you to do is make that decision for yourself. Uh, if you've never made that decision on your own to be baptized, uh, we do it every summer in the Allegheny River. It's my favorite time of year. But if you're interested in signing up for that, let me know. But uh, I want to show you that, that while that's not what Jesus is saying here, while, while water baptism uh, is an is uh, important step in your faith, uh, that's not what Jesus is referring to in this moment. So what is Jesus talking about when he says we must be born of water and born of the Spirit? Uh, we have to remember who Jesus is talking to here. Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. He is an expert and a teacher of Old Testament scriptures. And what Jesus is doing is what he did all the time. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's that, that Hebrew technique called remez, which simply means hint. Uh, I, uh, just in case you weren't here a few weeks ago, uh, if I were to say to you, sticks and stones, sticks and stones, I don't have to finish the saying. You know exactly what I'm referring to because you know the context. Jesus would do this all the time. He would drop in a key phrase and his audience would know the context and they would search it out. We have to really search for these connections, but, but they would know them right away. And that's happening right here. Jesus is connecting him in this case to Ezekiel chapter 36. Now the context uh, in Ezekiel um, is God has been speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And, and to be honest, it's kind of depressing for most of it because for the first 33 chapters, uh, they didn't have chapters, but in your Bible, it's the first 33 chapters. It's, it's all about the sin of man and the judgment of God against that sin. And in fact, they were in the midst of judgment because they were captives in Babylon in this time. But what happens when we finally get to verse 34 is there is this seismic shift where we move from the judgment of God into the hope of God. Uh, we talked about this uh, when we talked about Zacchaeus and, and Jesus said the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. He was pointing them back to Ezekiel 34. And what Ezekiel 34 is all about, uh, the, the leaders of Israel have failed the people. So God says, I'm going to come down and seek to save the lost uh, seek and save the lost myself. I'm going to come down and I'm going to do it myself because the leaders of Israel have failed. And when we finally come to, to chapter 36, verse 17, God says, now all of this that I'm about to do, it's not because of you. It's actually in spite of you because you've continued to sin. But in my mercy, I'm going to come down for the sake of my great name and I'm going to rescue you anyway. And what we have is sort of this image of grace because God says, I'm going to gather you back and I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to save you. Uh, and we're going to see in just a minute, it's not because of the people. We'll pick up in uh, Ezekiel 36, 22. God says, uh, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Now, what has taken place is in Babylon, the people of Israel have been split up. They've been, been sent all over the land uh, and they're all 
they're all separated. But rather than come to a place of repentance, what's happened is they've gone into those lands and they've given God a bad name in all of those lands. And God says, uh, in spite of all that, for the sake of my great name, I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to deliver you. So God says, I'm going to rescue you, and, and it's for the sake of my great name. Whenever you see that, that phrase, my great name, or for the sake of my name, it, it's not for like, uh, my name is Joseph. It, it, it's not that, that type of, of thing. What God is talking about when he says name is his reputation and his character. Uh, actually, that Hebrew word means reputation and character. So what God is actually saying uh, in this moment is I'm going to save you and deliver you and rescue you, not based on what you have earned, but because that is my character and that is, that's who I am. It's the grace of God that he comes to rescue us, not based on what we've earned, but because that is the character of God. He is full of mercy and grace and loving kindness, and that is who he is. Uh, we see this continued in verse 23. God says, I will show the holiness of my great name, how different and set apart I am and my character is. He says, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. And then we get to the reference from John chapter 3. He says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. And then he says, and I will give you a new heart and put, in, uh, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. Now remember in John 3, he said, uh, you must be born of water and born of the spirit. But here we have hundreds of years earlier, Ezekiel prophesied about a time where God would step into humanity and he would say, I'm going to sprinkle you with water and I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And if we read uh, what's happening here, uh, we, in, we, we tend to emphasize everything that God says he's going to do. Because he says he's going to take them and gather them and bring them and sprinkle them and cleanse them and give them a new heart and put in them a new spirit. But, but that's actually kind of missing a little bit of the context uh, of, of that time period because we have to remember all of this is coming out of Ezekiel 34 where God says the responsibilities uh, of the leaders of Israel, they have failed. So I'm going to do it. He says, I'm going to send my servant David to do it, speaking of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you read those verses eight times, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And the emphasis uh, for the people uh, about this being sprinkled with water and cleansed, uh, they, they knew what, they, what that meant. So it wasn't like, well, what does God mean by sprinkling us with water? When we read that, we're like, what's he talking about? But when they read that, they knew exactly what it was talking about because that was part of the Old Testament law. Uh, whenever anyone was considered unclean, they were actually cut off from all of the people until they became clean. And we see in Numbers chapter 19 what they had to do about that. We'll read really quickly, uh, beginning in verse 19. It says, The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seventh days, and on the seventh day he is to purify them. On to verse 20. 
But if those who are unclean do not purify themselves, they must be cut off from the community because they have defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them and they are unclean. This is a lasting ordinance for them. Uh, God's point here is what the shepherds of Israel are supposed to be doing, which is making sure that the flock is clean and cleansed. He's saying they're not doing that. So the shock factor in this message is not that they would be cleansed. It's that God is saying, I'm going to have to do it. He's saying uh, the, the emphasis is not actually on the action. It's on who's doing it. It's on the actor. That God would come down and he would be the one to purify and to cleanse the people. Now, if we go back to John, what Jesus, when he drops in this phrase, uh, what, what he's kind of saying is, Ezekiel told you this day was coming. Ezekiel told you a day was coming where God would step into humanity through his servant David and he would cleanse the people. The people would be cleansed through him and God would cleanse the people of their iniquities. And what Jesus is saying is this is being fulfilled in front of your eyes, Nicodemus. This is actually happening right before your eyes. And what he's saying is unless I cleanse them because I'm the one sent from God, unless it's me that cleanses them, they, they can't be born again. They can't be children of God. You can follow your rules and your regulations all you want. It's not going to get you anywhere. They have to be cleansed by Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, he's, he says, you're Israel's teacher. Don't you know these things? You should have Ezekiel memorized. And what Jesus is saying is unless someone first receives that cleansing, referenced in Ezekiel, unless the new spirit referenced in Ezekiel was placed in them, they could not see the kingdom of God. Now, if we move on to verse 14, Jesus is still speaking to Nicodemus and he says this, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in his name. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I want to go back to verse 14 for just a moment. Uh, here's what I love about this passage. If you've been with us the last few weeks, what you've noticed is John keeps going back to Moses. He keeps on comparing Jesus to Moses. He's talking about all the language of the tabernacle in chapter 1. And he's talking about the moment where God put Moses in the cleft of the rock. Uh, and, and then on into chapter 2, if you remember last week, he's still connecting him to Moses. It was Jesus' first sign versus Moses' first sign of turning the water... Uh, into blood. And then even after that, when we were talking about the ceremonial uh, jars, that takes us back to Moses. So, so John has been spending all of this time connecting us to Moses. And then Jesus finally, finally speaks up and he says, yep, I'm, I'm like Moses. I'm not even hinting at it. I'm telling you that I'm going to be like Moses who was lifted up uh, or who lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Now, now here's what can be a challenge uh, for some of us. Um, Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ram who had his head stuck in a thicket of thorns uh, with Abraham and Isaac. But if you come to me and you say, Jesus is like a snake, then I'm going to be offended on his behalf. At no point, if I were Jesus, would I be like, do you remember when that serpent was lifted up? I'm going to be like that serpent. I would be offended on his behalf. Like, why would you go into that kind of imagery? Why didn't, you, why didn't Moses lift up a lamb on the, on the pole so we could say, did you see the lamb lifted up? Just like, oh, so much easier if we could just say that. But we need to understand what's taking place here. Because Jesus didn't look back at that snake that was lifted up and say, ah, oh, kind of works. Let's go with that. I'm going to be like that snake. No, no, Jesus wasn't pointing back. All of those things that happened were pointing forward to Jesus. So everything that happened was purposeful and it was meant to point forward to Jesus. Now, just to give context, I want to read that passage in, in Numbers 21 about that event. It says that... Um, uh, they traveled from Mount Hor uh, along the route to the Red Sea to go around to Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now again, th this, this snake was foreshadowing Jesus Christ. And Jesus said as much, we just read it. Why didn't he say, put a lamb on a pole and lift it up? See, the problem here, um, if, you, if you'll put that passage, uh, I, I have it highlighted there, Greg, if you'll put it up. Uh, it says, the Lord said to do this. The Lord said, God said to do it exactly this way. It was no accident that it was a snake uh, that was lifted up. And God made this command. And what he said, Renee, you could come. Uh, what he said was, Moses, I want you to take an image of what is afflicting the people and what is actually killing the people. And I want you to lift it up. And when people look upon what is afflicting them and when people look upon what is killing them, they will be saved. So if we take this to what Jesus says, because Jesus said, uh, that's like me, are we saying that Jesus was saying, I'm afflicting you and I'm killing you? Well, there, there's one way that this actually does make sense. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, that moment on the cross, what happened in that moment is God became sin so that he could pay the price for sin. Jesus became the very thing that afflicts us. Jesus became the very thing that kills us and he paid the price so that we would not have to. The Bible says that he embodied our sin 
on the cross. And in that way, he was lifted up in the exact same way as the snake in the book of Exodus. And what he said is when we look upon him, when we believe upon him, when he's been lifted up, we find healing, we find deliverance, we find salvation, we find redemption. Can you stand with me, church? Lord, this morning we want to recognize everything that you did for us on the cross. Our burden that you took upon your shoulders. That Jesus, you became sin. The very thing that's been afflicting and killing us, you became that. And you put it to death on the cross for us. And I do pray this morning that we would begin to walk in the freedom that you have given us through that moment. service and just be careful on the roads. I think we got a little snow coming in. So have a good week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.